So I enjoy watching NFL football, and I cheer for the New York Giants, who are terrible. And uh, this season is painful. As I'm watching it, uh, their quarterback, Daniel Jones, he's got a ton of turnovers. If you don't watch football, if you don't watch the NFL, it's not, it's not important. I mean, this isn't going to be a long, belabored you know, sort of introduction to, to, to football. Suffice it to say, it's so bad. I have a little jingle that I sing whenever I'm watching the football game about Daniel Jones. Because when my children were very small, they watched a show called Daniel Cook. And so I watch NFL football and I find myself singing this all the time. This is Daniel Jones and he's fumbling the ball and the Giants are behind and I'm losing my mind and I'm just slandering Daniel Jones. Now, am I in any sort of a position to judge a professional athlete? Am I qualified to really slander Daniel Jones? I mean, do I... I'm five foot nine. When I played football, it was at a very low level. When I coached football, it was at a very low level. Uh, when I got my BMI done at the gym one time, it came back and it was basically, I'm like one part espresso, one part dad bod, 50-50 mix. Susan's laughing. It, it, the dad bod was higher than the espresso. Mix. I don't know. But I'm not in any position to be criticizing and judging a professional athlete. And um, the reality is that when I'm sitting in my comfy chair here with a handful of Lay's, because no, I can't just eat one, um, I am in no position to be judging uh, professional athletes because I'm not in their situation. I don't have the pressure. And, and if you're in the room while I'm slandering them, you, they can't you know, come to my house and defend uh, themselves. When we sit in judgment and we sit in uh, slanderous speech against you know, celebrities or politicians or, or um, political figures and um, artists, athletes, people that we don't know, people that we don't have any contact with. Of course, to sit in that judgment is negative, but there's, real no, there's really no impact. There's no comparison to the dramatic relational fallout uh, that occurs when we sit in judgment of family, when we sit in judgment of our church family, now, when we sit in judgment and we slander uh, friends, people that we know, co-workers, um, there's just no comparison between passing judgment on someone you don't know and the fallout that comes from passing judgment on someone that you do know. And our, our text for this morning is James chapter 4, where he's dealing with the subject of judgment and slander. And, uh, you know, he has a thesis for his whole book. And for those of you that are maybe new joining us this morning, this, the thesis that James has for his whole book is, um, if you claim to be united to Jesus Christ, then you are going to bear a resemblance to Jesus Christ. Now, living a life uh, that resembles the love and the compassion of Jesus, that's not what the gospel is, but that certainly is what the gospel does. Uh, for those of you new to Christian faith joining us this morning, sort of coming in mid-conversation in James chapter 4, what the gospel is, is God's forgiving grace for you. And what the gospel does is it produces uh, you know, a loving resemblance to Jesus, sort of a love that comes through you. And so the problem that James is having with his church in Jerusalem, which you can find in our church and you can find in any church, is he has Christians that are talking a really big game about grace, but they have no desire 
or there's no evidence that they want to imitate the Lord of grace. And so today, as we go into this text, as we read it together and we do some deep cuts, you know, on these verses, really our prayer is that as we read God's word, this living word reads us. James chapter four, starting in verse 10 to verse 17. Humble humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go and we'll do this or we'll go to that city and we'll spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is God's word. We are going to explore this text in three ways. The first thing we're going to look at is the problem of sitting in judgment. The second thing we're going to look at is the problem of living in presumption. And the third thing is God's solution for both. So first, let's look at the problem of sitting in judgment. The problem of sitting in judgment is we reject the wisdom of Jesus And we act in a way that bears no resemblance to Jesus. Uh, When the scripture is instructing Christians, like here and there's other texts you'll find, against judging, it's it's not against discernment and assessing situations and ethical decisions or trying to look at something, you know, carefully with nuance in order to determine which course of action is congruent with the character and the nature of God. Okay, that the Bible's never saying don't judge in that way. It's not the exercising of discerning judgment. It's the problem is scandalous judgment. And the Bible never condones the scandalous judgment. That's why you know, scandal in the, in the, in the Greek, um, it means, um, you know, it's with malice. Yeah, the whole intent is, uh, is with malice. You're trying to destroy somebody's reputation or their livelihood um, by falsely incriminating you know, them in some way. And if you zoom out to the book of James and read the whole letter to be like, what's this all about so we don't lose the forest uh, for the trees? He's got huge problems with class divisions in the church, the way that um, the rich are relating to the poor, the way that um, a predominantly homogenous uh, group of people with one ethnicity being Jewish are now relating to Greeks and Jews coming in. Like you've got... You've got ethnicity problems. You've got class divisions. Like, so the, the way in which they're sort of scandalizing and judging each other has a lot to do with, hey, you, didn't, you weren't raised the way I was raised. We are very different. We come from different cultures. I have a different education than you. Uh, we are d- in different socioeconomic classes, so I have different values than you. So there's just a lot of judgy, judgy, judge going on there. And the same can be said not only in our own church here at Redeemer, but in all churches that that, that risk is always sort of ever-present that we can have a sort of, uh, uh, this sort of ungodly judgment in the way that we talk. So the thing is, when our insecurity and pride bubbles up like a toxic broth, 
and we, you know, talk about someone like they're inferior to present ourselves as inferior, uh, slander spreads very quickly, uh, everywhere in the church included. And, um, because we all know that good news, a good news doesn't travel near as fast as bad news. And there have been psychological studies done on this that are really interesting. Two of them that I read sort of as I was considering the speed at which the slander moves. Uh, one was by McGill University in 2014 and one in 2013 at the University of Amsterdam, where they both saying, like moths to a flame, there's something about our eyes just tracking to negative words, our eyes just being gripped by negative news. And there's just something about the dark sort of shadows of the human heart that somehow love the, the bad news like tasty truffles. And so James sees the potential for this to really ruin the culture of the church. And uh, so we, as the modern church, ought to sort of take note so we can walk in, in wisdom as it relates to this. If you look at verses 11 and 12, <clears throat> he says, if you slander a brother or sister, then you're slandering the law of God. If you misrepresent you know, brother and sister, you're misrepresenting the law of God. And then he goes so far as to say, you're actually exalting yourself above the law of God. You're judging the law of God. And uh, it's incredibly strong language. Uh, what is James doing here? Is he exaggerating? Uh, is he trying to just catch our attention by, with some like really, really unrealistic writing to just make the church stop and be like, what do you mean I'm judging the law of God? You know, that escalated quickly. Is it like those, you know, teen dramas where they write really dramatic, melodramatic things to just catch everybody's attention and it feels like da, da, da. you know the kind of thing where it's like i can't believe you brought a banana to lunch you know that yellow washes me out you don't love me chad you know well this is extreme how did we get here that's not how james is using this language he's not just being excessive this is actually the ninth commandment for those of you who know the ten commandments you've already recognized that this is the ninth commandment that says Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. You don't, you don't destroy somebody's reputation or destroy somebody's livelihood through slander. You don't destroy their opportunity to make friendships in the church by talking about them in a way that makes it very difficult for them to make friendships in the church or on and on and on we could kind of go. But it's, the reason it's the law of God, the, the ninth commandment, is because God's law was given so that his children could flourish in community flourish in society. The wisdom of God's law for his children uh, was supposed to sort of be a model for all of the nations that they would look and see this is how you're to flourish. And of course, we know that Old Testament history teaches us that the people of God just couldn't do this. And hence, we needed Jesus who would come and live that loving life perfectly because we just simply cannot do it. And so that's why James uses the language. It's the law of God. And so he's being literal, saying you're literally judging the law of God if you just or sort of, you know, uh, wheels off, you know, uh, speech without borders. You can't do that. And now, uh, he's also taking a page out of his big brother's sermon when Jesus preached in Matthew 7 on judgment, when he was saying, y'all are trying to, you know, point out sawdust in each other's eyes and you're walking around with a two by four corkscrewed into your eye socket. And so if our faith is dead, then, you know, which is a big theme in James' letter. If our faith is dead, then we're not going to care about any of this. We're not going to care about the words that we're using. And we're not going to care about whether or not we resemble Jesus. But if our faith is alive, which is what James is arguing for his church, and I'm arguing for our church, is that if our faith is alive, we're going to care very much about uh, imitating Jesus and bearing a resemblance to Jesus. And without question, 
uh, our the resemblance that we bear, starting with the, this preacher, um, is deeply flawed and it is imperfect. But if our faith is alive, though it is imperfect, it will also be increasing. Because the Holy Spirit who indwells us will be doing a work and it will be ongoing and we will more and more desire this uh, imitation. And so as being people of worship, we slowly become people of wisdom. And as people of worship become people of wisdom, we lose our appetite for arrogant judgment. So let's move on to the second thing. From the problem of sitting in judgment, James sort of talks about the problem of living in presumption. And the problem of living in presumption uh, is you, you know, if you can go through life with indifference to the presence of God, indifference to the guidance of God, indifference to the written word of God, your heart has definitely not been gripped by the beauty and the grace of God. So in verse 13, this presumption shows up and here's what it looks like. You look at verse 13 and he says, tomorrow we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to go here, we're going to build a business, we're going to make money, it's going to be amazing. And James has a problem with this. Why does he have a problem? James says, instead of saying tomorrow we will go, James wants him to say, well, if it's the Lord's will, we will go. And what's his problem? Why is this a big deal? Uh, Why would he call them out on this? Again, the Bible is not against planning and Gantt charts and calendars and, you know, reminders on your phone so we can be productive and Q1 projections and forethought and vision. The Bible's not against any of these things, of course, um, but their speech is revealing something deeper. It's the way they're talking about their life. It's the way they're talking about their future that has James's pastoral spidey senses tingling. And he's like, there's actually a problem underneath this. For example, have you ever had somebody say something to you and they're using all the right words, but you're like, something is definitely wrong. I'll give you some examples. Okay, mom. Whatever you say, dad. No, 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 seriously. I mean, it's, no, this is your, uh, your, your, your research. This is your, no, I, I agree. You're the boss. This is your department. No, this project is your baby. No, no. How about this one? Oh, no, no, no. I completely understand. The, the, The words... (laughs) <laughs> you write those words down. They're all great. But the whole vibe is just, you're just like, wow, something is definitely wrong. So James is listening to the way the church is talking about their life. And he's going, something is sorely amiss here. We've got some big, big time problems. And the problem that he sees um, is is that some of the people in this church, they're living in such presumption about their future, their their course of life. He's not seeing any evidence that they desire the guiding presence of God in their life. God is not their guide. God is like their carry-on. You are not guiding me through this journey called life. You're my carry-on. And I'll pick you up when I want. I'll put you down when I want. Or maybe I'll leave you in the hotel room. I mean, you are certainly not guiding me. You're something that I sort of bring with me. Or that if I'm a religious person, I weirdly think you're obligated to bless me um, because I've done you the, you know, I've 
I've done you the pleasure of, uh, of, of placing my faith in you, Lord, and uh, so you therefore owe me a great life. So James, underneath this language of we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to build a business, we're going to make money, James is going, wow, we've got a, we've got a deep problem here. So in verse 15, he says, um, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will. Why is he doing that? He's not looking for a vernacular change. He's not saying, you know, hang on a second, the, the proper, you know, language would be this. It's not a vernacular change. It's a heart change. He, this is what he's after. Um, I'll, 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 I'll maybe uh, share it this way. I enjoy driving a lot. I like getting in my car, get in the dad mobile. You can drive. I, I love to just either drive, listen to no music, just my thoughts, or maybe pray, or maybe music, put the playlist on, combination of things. Just, I really, really enjoy driving. Imagine one day Susan comes downstairs. She's like, oh, where's Paul? And she's like, I don't know where he is. So she calls me and she's like, hey, where are you? And I'm like, oh yeah, no, I, I just went for a drive. Uh, yeah, I just didn't tell you I was leaving the house. And so she's like, oh, okay, all right. Well, where are you? And I'm like, well, I'm in Thunder Bay because I got in the car and I was just feeling it and life as a highway came on and you got to love that Tom Cochran guy. He's Canadian. You got to give props to the kid. And so I just, I just went with it. Life is a highway. And uh, so I'm in Thunder Bay and uh, it never happened. You, you, don't, you just don't make plans and live your life in total isolation from the people that you love. This is James' point. You guys don't just make your plans in complete isolation from the people that you love. If you do make plans in complete isolation, unilateral decision from the people that you love, that is a commentary on the depth of your love or the lack thereof of that love. And so verse 18, he says, um, you boast in your arrogance. So I'm going to just give you a little bit of Greek because I think this is going to be great. For those of you who are new, uh, I'm going to quickly say this. For those of you who are a redeemer, you already know what I'm going to say because I say this all the time. You do not need to know the original languages to uh, read the Bible. You can understand it in English. The translations are faithful. But sometimes when you go to the original, uh, for those of us who've been in church for a really long time and have read these texts over and over, sometimes the original is like um, something going from standard def to HD. And you're like, oh, wow, I'm, now I'm seeing something new. So here we go. When, that word arrogance, our English word arrogance in the original Greek, it is alonzania. And so this uh, phrase uh, in the Greek, alonzania, it's a word um, when he says you're, you're boasting and you're arrogant. It was usually originally described in the um, ancient Greek writings as the characteristic of a wandering quack. What is a wandering quack? Uh, Aristotle used this language too, the arrogant person, the wandering quack. Well, um, whenever there was somebody who was posing to be a doctor, who was not a doctor, who was offering cures where there were no cures, with great swagger, they were boasting about being able to do things that was not in their power to do. You know, Aristotle and other ancient Greek writers would call them wandering quacks. And the Greek word for wandering quack, quack is arrogant. And so what James is saying here is he's going, you're like a wandering quack. You are talking about your life like you've got the power to do things when these things are not in your power um, to do. You can't just unilaterally make these decisions. You're living like there is really no God. You've got the power to just manifest your own success like you are God. So that's why he goes on to say, what is your life? 
You're like a mist. You're like a vapor. And uh, he's not trying to depress the church. He's trying to humble the church so that the goodness and the grace of God can actually truly liberate uh, the church uh, by being gripped by his grace. He's saying, your life is so short. And for those of you who are young, you know, let's say, let's call young people uh, 30 years old and under. We'll call all those people young because I'm 45. I'm 45. I'm turning 46 next year. And when I was a teenager, uh, <laughs> my impression of a 40-year-old was this. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm 40 years old. So when you're, when you're young, the idea of life being a vapor, uh, it doesn't resonate because you're like, you're, you're young. And if you're young and strong, then your body's made out of rubber and magic and you can do whatever you want the next day. You feel. But for those of us who are getting older, we recognize, oh, wow, life is a bit like a mist. I mean, this thing is moving pretty quickly. Um, and so James is drawing their attention to this because his point is when your heart is gripped by the beauty of God, when your heart is gripped by the grace of God, you will invite the direction of God. And when your life goes sideways, you will find great solace in the redirection of God. This God of direction, this God of redirection, you will love him. You will find great beauty in him. As opposed to I'm going to do this and go that and do this and do there and then have a crisis of faith when it doesn't work out. Because if you're a religious person with dead faith and your life goes sideways and you thought God was obligated to bless everything you did, you're going to constantly be wondering where he is when, when the truth is he's right there uh, available and with you. And so our prayers then, uh, what James is arguing when he's saying, say, if it's the Lord's will, it's that our prayers should sound like Moses in Exodus 33 when he said, we don't want to go anywhere unless you go before us. And that's the heart of the one who's gripped by the beauty of God's grace, which leads to the final thing. The final thing is this. Now, after the problem of judgment and after the problem of, um, of, uh, of presumption, we've got God's solution in this text for both. God's solution for our prideful judgment and our arrogant approach to life um, is to humble ourselves before God so that he can give us the strength to live out what we can very plainly see in the word of God. So I want you to notice this text as it comes on your screen there. Um, I want you to notice how the instruction has some really beautiful bookends. Verse 10 and verse 17, the beginning and the end. It begins by saying, uh, the context, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And then it ends by saying, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin. So where then is the strength to do the right thing? Where then is the strength to not sin? It, it begins by being found in the humility before the Lord that he will lift you up. That is the language of strength. In other words, the same grace that opens your eyes to be able to see what is right is the same grace that gives you the strength to increasingly, yes, of course, imperfectly, but continually do what is right. Be committed to do what is right. The same grace that rescues us, renews us, opens our eyes to see God's word and then empowers us and gives us the strength to do the things that we begin to plainly see in God's word. You know, we have to humble ourselves because there's a vastness to God. Obviously, no Christian can fully comprehend God, um, and there's things we know 
are right because they've been revealed to us in the word of God. Both of these things are true. James is really borrowing again from the wisdom of his big brother, Jesus, who said in Luke chapter 12, to those who um, much is given, much will be required, right? With great, you know, comprehending power comes great responsibility. That's what he's saying. He's saying we've, we've got to be able to do what we plainly see in the word of God. This is the way. Now, here's the good news. We don't have a God who is out of touch with us, uh, out of touch with slander, out of touch with judgment, arbitrarily sort of telling us not to slander and not to pass uh, ill-advised uh, relationship ruining judgment. Our God came into this world in Jesus Christ and he suffered the destruction of slander and unjust judgment. Jesus Christ went to the cross because slander and unjust uh, judgment put him there. And he paid the price for you and I who are guilty of slander and unjust judgment. And united to Jesus Christ by grace, he gives us his track record so that before God, we did not stand guilty which is what we all deserve, but we are declared righteous, which is what we don't deserve. Jesus, of course, was righteous by nature, and we are declared righteous by this grace. And so when the end of the text reads and it says, if you know what's right and you don't do it, it's sin, we have to look at that and realize, actually, we're all guilty of that. We can't go a day without sin, and all of us are guilty in some way of sin. And the bad news is that, you know, God being a God of perfect love and holiness, he, he can't dwell with sin. He can't coexist with sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, who knew what was right, who always desired what was right, who always did what was right, has united himself to us, and he is the one who's never sinned. And so we are now welcomed into God because of Jesus because not only did he desire the ways of God and know the heart of God, but he perfectly walked out the word of God. He's the reason you and I can gather every Sunday. And this can be a celebration. And we can call ourselves the children of God. Because the perfect life of Jesus, the atoning death of Jesus, the divine resurrection of Jesus means, John chapter 1 and verse 12 tells us, we have the right to call ourselves children of God. And so as recipients of God's saving grace, May we relate and speak uh, and be like-minded uh, you know, and exercise judgment in this church community, um, not with slander, you know, creating division, but with uh, words of dignity and decency and love so that we can keep the unity. Let's pray.